It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion about the murder of two children. Sometimes it is difficult to find experts to speak about the Richard Allen case. and Sometimes it's not. Shay Hughes, who works as a public defender in Tippecanoe County, which borders Carroll County, regularly posts terrific legal analysis about this and other cases on Instagram and Twitter. You can find him by looking for Hoosier Public Defender on either of those sites. After reading some of his posts, we knew our audience would be interested in hearing from him, and we were delighted when he agreed to speak with us about the Delphi case, whether or not he expects Allen to face the death penalty, and a host of other related subjects. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, 
we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is a conversation with the Hoosier Public Defender. What stands out for you in the Richard Allen probable cause affidavit? Well, the one thing that stands out, I guess, is ultimately, I mean, he puts himself at the scene of the alleged offense. But not to reiterate what prior guests have kind of said, the one thing that I'm, I'm kind of surprised about is, you know, the lack of or any reference about the voice identification of the recording, the detective at the end of the probable cause affidavit mentions and kind of concludes that from eyewitnesses and so forth, that they're identifying the same person as Richard Allen. He makes those conclusions himself, but there's no, nothing about the recording. So that's one thing that I kind of find interesting. The other thing is just about the whereabouts after the, you know, in terms of the timeline about what were Richard Allen's whereabouts after this occurred. And we have no information about that. What do you make of them not referencing either the recording or the uh, timeline? You know, there's not much for me to ultimately, I guess, speculate about that. I'm, I'm just, I'm surprised about the voice recording just because it's pretty easy. I shouldn't say easy, but in terms of voice identification, you know, I would say from a law enforcement perspective, it is easy to establish a foundation in terms of voice recognition. You know, essentially, you just need someone that heard the person's voice, provide the time and place that the witness recognize the voice as a certain person, they're familiar with it. And then the witness explains the basis for their familiarity with the voice. You know, hey, look, I interviewed this person previously. I've heard recordings and so forth of this person through interviews. And, you know, I've listened to this recording as well. And in my opinion, you know, it, it sounds similar. In terms of the PC in, in Delphi, I mean, when you're looking at in, in, over the course of your experience doing criminal defense, how does the PC look compared to most PCs that you've sort of viewed in your time? Um, it's a lot different than a lot of other probable cause affidavits. Um, you know, you wouldn't kind of have, and, and I get that it's, it's just, 
different because you, you know, you have all circumstantial evidence. You don't have any direct evidence. So that's obviously going to change kind of the, how you lay out the probable cause affidavit, but it's different in the fact that, you know, it, it takes a long winding up to get to, you know, okay, how are we getting to Richard Allen? And then you have a lot of speculation at the end of it from the detective that I just honestly don't believe will ultimately a court would allow during trial. Um, so the format is a little bit different than the ordinary probable cause affidavit, definitely. And speaking about whether or not things are different, was the uh, defense motion for discovery, is that typically the sort of motion you would see for discovery, or was that also unique in some ways? Uh, no, that's a, that's a typical motion that you would see in discovery. Yeah. You know, I had mentioned on my social media about it essentially being a template. I believe this ultimately came from the Indiana Public Defender Council, and it's been kind of passed around with other attorneys, and that's fine. You know, it's something that I've even used myself. I've seen it from other attorneys. You know, so when I say it's a template, from our perspective as a public, we shouldn't read too much into what's being requested. You know, I know there's been some discussion about, you know, was there a grand jury or a confidential informant? Um, I doubt that any type of grand jury was ultimately conducted. That's part of the template that I've seen. The confidential informant, same there. Were there anonymous tipsters that were probably utilized? Uh, yeah, definitely. But I just wouldn't read too much into the template itself. I think paragraphs 21 through 23 are the only paragraphs that seem to be tailored towards this case, that being requesting records associated with the Carroll County Sheriff's Office. So, so even stuff like when uh, they were asking for, did anybody basically in the prison or the jail overhear incriminating comments that's just something that you would see asked for typically? Yes. And, you know, I compare the template that I have um, to the to the motion itself, and pretty much it, it is verbatim, word for word, the exception being paragraphs 21 and through 23. Having seen some of these documents from the defense and also some of the media comments before the gag order went down, are you putting together any sort of insights or can we draw any conclusions about what sort of strategy they might be going for? Um, for example, one thing that we noted is that at least in the initial media comments and and certainly in the statement they sent to us and other outlets, you know, they were very much stressing it seemed like actual innocence as opposed to another sort of strategy the defense might employ. Is that something that you're sort of seeing or thinking about or uh, what sort of insights do you have on on that? Well, in terms of defense strategies, I mean, it's all going to boil down to, to one thing ultimately, which is identification. Can they prove that it was the defendant, Richard Allen, that committed the murder? So, you know, related to that, there's going to be an argument of insufficient evidence. You know, in other words, it's the state's burden to prove identity beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a strict and heavy burden. Defendants presumed innocent um, that you should conform the evidence to that presumption if you can do so. That if there are two reasonable interpretations of the evidence, you have to choose the interpretation consistent with Richard Allen's innocence. More factually, uh, that there will not be a single witness on the trail that day that is going to be able to identify Richard Allen in court, that all witnesses came forward after, I'm assuming, the police solicited assistance from the public. 
that some of those witnesses came forward after having observed the video or, or photographs, um, and that makes their testimony highly suggestive, that the witness in particular who saw the muddy, bloody male never called police right thereafter, at least that's not provided for in the probable cause affidavit, that essentially the state's case is entirely circumstantial evidence. So, you know, that's that's one theory or one defense strategy that I see. The other one is going to be alibi. Alibi is a little bit different. It's uh, a defense where a defendant demonstrates that because he was not at the scene of the crime, having been at another place, he could not have committed the crime. And this would be ultimately, it depends on how they're going to demonstrate this defense, but it ultimately would require them putting on some evidence that could be from third parties and it could come from Richard Allen himself. I guess a problem there would be that Richard Allen himself puts himself roughly at the scene of the crime. He certainly does. But, you know, we do have a gap in time. If I recall correctly from from the probable cause affidavit, it's what, around like 2.30 or so forth. I think the, the last report of anyone seeing the figure. So, yeah, looking at my notes, it's around 2, 2.28, 2.30, other witnesses on the trail, none of them saw a male subject matching what's commonly referred to as bridge guy. But then, you know, the, the bodies of the two girls aren't found until the following day, if I recall correctly. So you have this large gap in time of what was Richard Allen's whereabouts from approximately around 2.30 that day moving forward. And I know I think his first statement to police, the conservation officer had noted, at, what was it, I think he was there from about the hours of 1.30 to about 3.30 p.m., but we don't have anything thereafter. So I get, you know, that he does put himself earlier in the day, but whether or not he has any whereabouts of, of thereafter, I, I, I don't know. Also, uh, a lot of people are curious about coming up next month is uh, the bond hearing. What can you tell us about that process and what sort of things people can expect from that hearing? Well, the bond hearing is going to be a little bit different than the typical bond hearing that you would have in a criminal case. You know, in a typical criminal case, it's usually the defense just simply calling their own client to talk about their ties to the community and so forth, maybe having a family member testifying. And then it's just argument of counsel. This is a little bit different because he's held no bond right now. And under the Indiana Constitution, murder can be held no bond, but as long as there's proof that is evident or the presumption is strong. So it's ultimately the state's burden once you file a motion asking for a bond in a murder case, and they'll have to show by a preponderance of evidence that Richard Allen's guilt is evident or there's a presumption of guilt. Not only is it it's their burden, but they just simply can't rely on the charging information or the probable cause affidavit itself. They, in fact, actually have to present evidence at the hearing from which an independent determination can be made. So ultimately, what does that mean and what to expect during the bond hearing? I would suspect that they're going to put on a detective or some type of law enforcement officer that has worked this case extensively, that is familiar with it, Uh, And that detective will summarily testify about the investigation. 
for me, you know, in terms of any testimony that I would like to see to ensure, you know, from the state's perspective that Richard Allen continued to be held no bond is really narrowing that timeline. Um, you know, hey, look, we spoke to Richard Allen about uh, where he went thereafter. We couldn't corroborate anything he said. It's just solely his word. You know, related to that, uh, there's no possibility of misidentification. You know, there's some mention in the probable cause affidavit of other people being on the trail that day. And and I guess the testimony that I'd be looking for is, you know, we thoroughly vetted these people and and there's just no reason to suspect that they're suspects. So in other words, no possibility of misidentification, no possibility of alibi. And, you know, what I can say uh, related to that for a bond hearing, the rules of evidence don't apply. Okay, so there's a lot of things that the detective ordinarily wouldn't be able to get into in trial, but could get into during a bond hearing. That's very interesting. Can you explain the difference between the burden of proof we could expect to see at the trial and the burden of proof that will be the standard at this bond hearing? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned with the bond hearing preponderance of the evidence, more true than not. Um, you know, people like to give a percentage of 51%. Beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest burden that you essentially have in law. And I think I kind of touched on it previously is that, you know, it's a, it's a strict and heavy burden. The defendant is presumed innocent, that you should conform the evidence to his innocence, and that if there are two reasonable interpretations of the evidence, you must choose the interpretation consistent with Richard Allen's Uh, innocence. You mentioned the wrinkle of alternative suspects in this case. And I was just curious, you know, just looking at this overall, how do you sort of weigh that factor in all of this? The fact that there have been other suspects in this investigation and that currently, since we last heard from the prosecutor and many of the law enforcement figures in this case, they're indicating that the investigation is still ongoing, and they believe that other factors, other parties may be involved. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it makes it an interesting case. And, you know, one thing that I kind of failed to note from a defense perspective is, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that essentially if, if during their case in chief, uh, that they kind of go on the offensive, that they almost kind of act like a prosecutor, so to speak. And, you know, put on evidence to point at other suspects. I mean, that's entirely possible. Now, from the prosecutor's perspective, you know, the way to address it is simply get out ahead of it. Get out ahead of it in your case in chief. You know, always ask the bad questions first, the difficult questions first. That's something, I mean, you make a good point with that about there being other suspects, but that's how I would address it if I was a prosecutor. Um, simply try to get out ahead of it. Um, mention that, yeah, there were other suspects, but here's why we excluded them. Don't give the defense any benefit. That makes a lot of sense. And and then one other thing that we've been thinking about from the defense perspective as sort of a strategic move, and I, I was wondering if you're sort of seeing any opportunities for this or, or how you're thinking about this. Uh, and, th- and that's just, you know, possibly motions to suppress Uh, certain elements um, of the prosecution's case, you know, certain pieces of evidence. And as far as as you've seen in sort of the public developments here, are you noting any 
opportunities for the defense to possibly get certain things suppressed? No, not at this point. I mean, there's nothing for me to suggest that there's anything to suppress. I haven't seen anything of that nature. Would it surprise me if there's no suppression ultimately filed? Yeah, it would. I suspect we'll see something at some point in time. But, you know, expect that this case is essentially going to go through every type of evidentiary hearing that you can imagine. That being, you know, what you alluded to, the suppression, and then more, well, for now, off the top of my head, is is what witnesses can testify to. You know, I think there's going to be a, a long uh, motion eliminating hearing related to this case regarding what testimony witnesses can and can can and cannot get into uh, regarding this case. And then I think we were curious about your thoughts on the charging information here. That's been something that's sort of been a matter of discussion in the case. And what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me why, um, why, well, it's commonly referred to publicly as felony murder. You know, in Indiana, we have essentially four kinds of murder. They're all referred to as murder. But it just doesn't make sense to me why they charged felony murder, okay? You know, murder itself, I'll just quickly define it. You know, it's just, it's four elements, okay? Uh, one, the defendant. Two, knowingly or intentionally. Three, killed. And four, the victim. So four elements, right? Pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Felony murder, the prosecutor is essentially going to have, you know, nine or eight elements, depending on how you look at it. But it would be one, the defendant, two, killed, three, the victim, four, while committing or attempting to commit kidnapping, which is defined as follows. One, the defendant, two, knowingly or intentionally, three, remove the victim, four, by force or threat of force, and five, from one place to another. So you're adding essentially four or five additional elements that you don't need for ordinary murder. You know, I don't get it at the end of the day because the offense, you know, in terms of sentencing remains the same between ordinary murder and felony murder. Okay. You know, it's still 45 to 65 years. Advisory sentence is 55 years. Okay. Both counts can run consecutive to each other, regardless of ordinary murder or felony murder. So for a total of 130 years, you know, regardless, you'd have to serve 75% of the sentence. Um, the only thing that I can see for charging felony murder is that this would ultimately make the case death penalty or life without parole eligible. Um, so in Indiana, murder can be life without parole, death penalty eligible if there's an aggravating circumstance that exists. There are 40 plus aggravating circumstances that qualify. One of those is um, committing or attempting to commit kidnapping. Um, the only thing that the state would need to do, given the charging information, is just file a notice of intent that they're seeking the death penalty or a sentence of life without parole, and then ultimately reference that uh, kidnapping offense as the aggravating circumstance. Um, but that notice hasn't been filed, okay? And if you're not going to go through with life without parole uh, or death penalty, then I, I guess why did you charge felony murder. You know, it's just a lot easier um, to just simply do ordinary murder. But with that said, the state can always amend the charges so long as the amendment doesn't prejudice the defendant's substantial rights. Um, and the state can always file an intention seeking life without parole or death penalty 
at any time so long as the defense is afforded an opportunity to prepare. Um, but long story short, it's just a lot easier from the prosecutor's perspective, you know, to charge and to try murder itself if they're not going to seek the death penalty or life without parole. We'll get back to our conversation with Shay in just a moment. But first, here's a word from our sponsors. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Do you have any sense or feeling if they will end up seeking the death penalty in this case? My sense would be that they ultimately wouldn't. Uh, I mean, they're, what is it now? I mean, we're, we're already more than two months in since they filed the charge itself. You know, from Richard Allen's perspective, if this is some type of plea negotiation or something they're holding over his head, it, it, it's not going to make any difference. Um, and there's a tremendous expense associated with uh, death penalty cases with the prosecution of such. Um, I think Indiana did a study, and I, I thought maybe this is nationally, maybe this is in the state of Indiana, but it, it, it averaged out, you know, these are around five hundred thousand dollars 
um, when death penalty cases are prosecuted. You, you know, that is extremely significant for a county like Carroll County. Um, so I just don't envision them doing it, you know, and essentially when you're looking at that much time, the judges, if you're convicted of both counts anyways, a, a judge is likely going to run those consecutive. Uh, I mean, he would be serving out, uh, you know, his time in prison. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I just don't foresee them filing, uh, death penalty. Now life without parole, um, that is different. I mean, the expense there, it's much lower and, Again, don't call me on this, but I thought the average cost of prosecuting a life without parole case is around $50,000. So fiscally, it's a lot more manageable. Uh, but again, with that said, I just, I, I just don't see it happening. You know, given his age, given the time that he's facing, you're essentially going to get the same result anyways. And then just generally, how friendly, I guess, for lack of a better term, is Indiana to the death penalty is are we a state that uh, carries out capital punishment a lot in your experience or uh, is it is it relatively rare you know that's a good question I don't know off the top of my head how many death penalty cases have ultimately been tried and then what the result of those have been um, I would just say that obviously the Feelings on the death penalty have definitely changed, and I think many people oppose it. I think you're in the minority if you're in favor of the death penalty nowadays. Um, and even in Indiana, um, I would say that that's it's probably close to about a 50-50 split. Um, but if there's a change of venue in the county that this is probably going to head to, or some of the counties that it's likely going to head to, which are going to be um, bigger, more metropolitan areas. Uh, I think you'd be in the minority, um, you know, in those areas, uh, if you're in favor of the death penalty. And then just in terms of the media coverage of Delphi, uh, as you're sort of following that as, as a defense attorney, um, are you noticing any information that's not quite accurate or people missing the point of certain things or, you know, elements of this case that people are sort of not really covering in the depth it deserves? And, and if so, you know, could you tell us a little bit about those? Well, I, yeah, I think the media has been well-intentioned. Um, you know, my, my only issue is obviously just trying to get, you know, the legal analysis correct, but that ultimately requires, you know, having a legal background. Um, and, you know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that really stands out. I can tell you, you know, having, having represented somebody that was suspected of this, um, sometimes, you know, people get things misconstrued. I mean, I did have, I do remember a New York Post article of a client of mine who was, it, it was captioned saying that he was in fact arrested. Uh, for this offense when that wasn't the case. Um, but going back to Richard Allen, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Um, but that comes with all cases, uh, you know, the people that just don't have the legal background kind of um, misconstrue things here and there uh, as it relates to legal analysis. That's a, that's, that's an interesting point with the, with the media coverage. We definitely try to, I mean, are there any elements of Indiana law, Indiana criminal law in particular, that are maybe a bit unique to the state, or at least, um, you know, might differ from 
you know, some other places in the United States or anything like that? I can't think of anything uh, with respect to this case that would that would be vastly different from any other any other state. No, not really. I mean, I could I could talk about consent to search and how we have a hurdle warning uh, that's similar to a Miranda warning if you're in custody, but that's kind of diving into some legalese uh, that were different from other states in that respect. But please dive in into the legalese, please. Uh, well, I mean, one thing I, I, I can that makes Indiana different, and I don't know, and it probably won't have any impact on this case, but um, it's one thing worth mentioning because we're unique in this respect, is that if you're in custody and police um, ask to search um, an item of yours, whether it be your house, your car, a belonging, uh, then they have to advise you and provide a PERTL warning, meaning, uh, in other words, that you have the ability uh, to refuse consent and that you uh, can speak with an attorney or consult with an attorney prior to giving consent. And that makes Indiana unique. That's one aspect of criminal law that I can think of. But in terms of anything else that relates to this case, no, I can't really think of anything. Um, yeah, well, this is this has been terrific. Uh I mean, I guess I just want to zoom out for a second and just get your uh, thousand foot view. Is this case against Richard Allen on the surface strong, weak, somewhere in between? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Both sides have their work cut out for him. I mean, this is going to be an extremely difficult case for both sides. Um, You know, for the prosecutor, it's going to be about narrowing that timeline. And for... For Richard Allen, you know, look, you know, here's here's my concern on, on, on any criminal case that I have is that a jury, you know, we can talk about the presumption of innocence and all that, but, you know, a jury's invested in law enforcement, right? I mean, they want to see, you know, their tax-supported agencies doing well. Um, they want to see law enforcement do well. You know, they want to see the prosecutor do well. Uh, that makes it difficult from the defense side. You know, I can dive a little deeper in if you want about the, uh, the unspent round and all that, but there's a lot of work to be done from the defense side on that and trying to limit or keep out that evidence entirely because, you know, the case law, uh, when it comes to tool markings and so forth is not defense friendly. Um, so there's going to be a lot of, evidentiary rulings that are going to go likely against uh, Richard Allen, you know, and that makes it extremely difficult. So, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, both sides have their work cut out for them. Anyone that tells you that they know, you know, they feel strongly one way or the other. I I really doubt they've tried a case. I mean, it, it is, it is very difficult. Absolutely. Well, this has been incredibly informative and helpful, and we really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Is there anything about this case that we didn't ask about um, or any other elements that you wanted to stress or you think would be important for our listeners to know about? You know, if I if I can just briefly touch on the firearm with the bullet and all that, yes. um, I, I just want to let it be known because I did post some stuff about this and I, I am going to do a follow up post. 
But I should note that back in 2011, the Indiana Supreme Court allowed expert testimony of a firearm and tool mark examiner who testified that tool marks on an unfired cartridge found in the residence of where the defendant was staying matched tool marks found on four discharge cartridge casings found at the crime scene and that the marks were made by the same tool of an unknown origin. So in other words, the Indiana Supreme Court has previously allowed tool mark examinations to come into evidence. And in the case that I just referenced, in that case, they they didn't actually have um, a handgun. They didn't have a firearm at all to examine. They were just taking an unspent round that they believed was ejected, and they compared it to four cartridge casings that were found in the scene of the crime. They compared the two and said, yeah, we got a match. Um, So, you know, that kind of puts Richard Allen and his defense team kind of behind the eight ball because I think there's a little bit more. I mean, they actually have a a firearm. Um, You you know, that that evidence is going to likely come in at trial. Now, there are ways to discredit it. Um, You know, it's subjective in nature. The the opinion even uh, says such. There are things to suggest about the conclusion is suggestive, just given that the information that police ordinarily provide to a lab analyst when they send something off, you know, and they're definitely going to have their own experts that are going to come in and testify about how you cannot make that conclusion. You know, that there's really no, um, I shouldn't say, I mean, there is some stuff to suggest about standards and so forth. And there, there is that in place but that it's ultimately difficult to determine the reliability, the repeatability of the methods used by tool marking experts, um, and that you're just not able to provide a level of confidence given your opinion. Um, but, you know, I think that people should know that this evidence, in my opinion, is, is, is likely to come in. That, that makes a lot of sense, given, given that there is a precedent there. Well, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can we bug you again in the future if, if you know, as more developments are, arise? Definitely. No, I'm more than happy to be on your show. I've, I've listened to a couple episodes myself, and I, I think you guys are doing a terrific job. We did our first call with Shea prior to the January 13th hearing in Richard Allen's case. After that hearing, we regrouped to talk about things like Judge Frank Gull's ruling on the defense's change of venue request. We'll get back to our conversation with Shay in just a moment. But first, here's a word from our sponsors. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. 
As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. As you know, Judge Gull decided that the trial would be held in Carroll County, but a jury would be brought in from another county. What did you think of that choice? Well, I was surprised by the ruling itself. You know, and I, I get where she's coming from. Let me preface this, that the Indiana court, Supreme Court has stated that the court, the trial court, can balance the rights of the media, the defendant, and the county citizens when determining change of venue. Um, and I, from the news reports that I saw, I think she took into account the witnesses being in the county, if I'm correct, and then along with the community's investment. I just don't personally find that reasoning um, compelling because that's inherent with every criminal case. And if we're going to put substantial weight on those factors, you know, it's going to be difficult for anyone to receive a full venue change. You know, in other words, if, if Richard Allen can't receive a full venue change, then who can? Um, you know, there are a few cases that have received the attention like this one has. In your view, you know, you know, I think a lot of lay people might see taking the jury from elsewhere as, as solving the need for a venue change because you're having, you know, a fresh jury pool as opposed to a Carroll County jury pool. In your view, what risks does Richard Allen still run by having his trial, you know, just take place physically in Carroll County? Well, there's a lot of concern with it just in terms of the logistics, making sure that all the jurors obviously end up safely arriving to Carroll County, but then trying to control what occurs outside the courthouse is going to be kind of difficult. I think it's fair to assume that jurors are going to see and hear supporters as they enter and exit the courthouse daily. The, the court's going to have to go to some you know, it's going to have to go out of their way in terms of ensuring that there's no outside influence on the jurors. And that's one thing that really concerns me. I saw a news report where there was at least one heckler as Richard Allen entered the courthouse. And I expect there to be more as trial proceeds. And when it comes to heckling like that, is that the sort of prejudicial activity that if the jury witnesses that, can it result in something like a mistrial? You know, I've never seen that. I don't know of any authority in Indiana law, but it's something that I would certainly raise um, if I was defense counsel. Right. So not necessarily, but something that the defense could grab onto. I guess the point I'm trying to kind of get at is that it seems like people doing that sort of thing are maybe 
possibly could be handing the defense a tool, essentially. And and obviously, if they're against Richard Allen, then it's kind of counter counterintuitive, but hurling abuse like that in public that a jury could witness would be, in a way, making the defense job easier. Yeah, you're definitely you know, helping or, or providing evidentiary support for defense, you know, that, that he cannot receive a fair trial in Carroll County, regardless of where the jury comes from. What are some of the problems in your mind with bringing in a jury from elsewhere as opposed to simply having the trial elsewhere? Uh, well, off the top of my head, ultimately, it's just kind of the... Um, you know, the, the day-to-day needs of a jury, I mean, in terms of, you know, where are you going to put them up at night? Um, what are you going to do in terms of food? Things of that nature. You know, the other thing with this case, it's going to take, I, I would say, at least four weeks. Um, so, you know, you're going to have to have probably more alternative jurors than you ordinarily would. I mean, I would say on a typical major felony case you have about one or two alternative jurors you're probably going to have want to have more given that this case is going to take at least a month and then there's security issues as well how do you ensure that jurors aren't receiving any outside influence so those are all things that need to be considered given the high level of scrutiny on this case would you have any concerns about somebody who knows a lot about it, essentially trying to um, fib or omit their way onto the jury? Yeah, that's always a concern. People trying to work their way into it, you know, and on a case like this, even if you move it or are going to have the jurors from another county, you're ultimately going to have to do individual jury selection. Um, so that means you bring in the, the juror one by one and individually ask them questions. Ordinarily, on a major felony case, you'd have, uh, you know, depending on how big the jury box is, you know, 12 to 13 prospective jurors where you're kind of asking them questions as a whole. Sometimes you get more individual questioning. But on a case like this, you're going to be bringing them in individually and asking questions to try to weed through that. The other thing that I would suggest is that they ultimately send out a custom jury questionnaire that is tailored specifically to this case and then that they send that out well ahead of time uh, that way you know defense counsel in the state has the opportunity to read through the responses and investigate prospective jurors uh, further uh, as, as we've mentioned you share insight about this and other cases on twitter and instagram is hoosier public defender And since this decision uh, the other day, you've been a bit critical there of the performance, for lack of a better word, of the defense attorneys. You said they haven't made a good record. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. You know, um, and let me preface this by before going into that. You know, I I do think that Richard Allen has two very good attorneys. um, And I think Andrew Baldwin is extremely experienced. I refer to him as a road warrior because he takes cases across the state and, you know, he ultimately tries those cases. But, you know, here's the issue that I have with 
their motion. It only cites the criminal rule 12. Okay. It makes no mention of, you know, the constitutional right of an impartial jury that it originates from the sixth amendment of the U S constitution, along with article one, section 13 of the Indiana constitution. And, you know, the other thing I will say in their defense, you know, much of the case law for change of venue is not favorable to defendant, but, um, you know, they should have at least cited a case that I mentioned on social media, which is Ward v. State. You know, there the defendant was charged with murder out of Spencer County. The newspaper reported on the community's reaction. They published the defendant's criminal history. They ultimately sent out a 28-page questionnaire to prospective jurors with over 65% stating they formed a belief as to guilt or innocence. But ultimately, the Indiana Supreme Court determined that the trial court erred in denying Ward's uh, motion for change of venue. And when you compare Ward to Richard Allen's case, Spencer County and Carroll County are similar in terms of size, population. There's certainly been a ton published about Richard Allen that would likely be inadmissible. And I'm sure if a questionnaire was presented to prospective jurors in Carroll County, you'd have a similar result. If it were me drafting this motion, I would have supplemented it with a memorandum, would have had a number of news articles as exhibits. I would have requested that a test jury be impaneled if the court wasn't inclined to grant the motion based on the pre-hearing filings. And I would have proposed submitting a custom questionnaire for jurors to fill out ahead of time. You know, and ultimately, you know, here's my issue. Initially, my reaction was that they should file for an interlocutory appeal and have the appellate court decide this. But, you know, I'm kind of going against that now. And my issue is this, ultimately, is, you know, if Richard Allen is convicted and if this issue is raised on appeal, the appellate court, I think there's a high probability that they're going to agree with the trial court because the appellate court will only re, only reverse for an abuse of discretion. And what that means, it means when the trial court's r- ruling was clearly against logic and effect of the facts and circumstances considered before it. Well, in this case, um, there just wasn't much provided to the trial court. And I get it that, you know, it was a very short hearing, but that's all the more reason that you, you want to get out ahead of time and make that record. And, you know, my concern is, you know, that if that were the case and he was convicted, the issues raised on appeal, that this will be repeatedly cited by prosecutors moving forward any time an issue change of venue comes up. In other words, hey, look, you know, there was substantial news coverage in Richard Allen's case and a change of venue was, you know, not fully granted um, in that case. So why is it appropriate for you, which, you know, for your client who has not received nearly the same type of media coverage? When you have a situation where the defense attorneys in this case are not establishing a substantive record and not citing substantively, is that, can we read into that? Is that a sign that they might be swamped by this massive case? Or could we, is there some other explanations that you can think of? No, I just, uh, I, I personally wouldn't read too much into it. You know, the one thing that I can say, um, you know, that I was critical of is, you know, just the, the timing of the motion itself. I think it came, 
maybe about three or four hours before the deadline that that motion was due. You know, the first motion that they had filed was the petition for bail. If it were me as counsel, you know, my priority would have been for the change of venue to get that motion filed. Um, and then I would have, I would have put in the time for, uh, to supplement it because you, you may run into a circumstance like this, you know, where, where the court doesn't necessarily have a formal evidentiary hearing on your motion and just makes a ruling from the bench right then and right there. I don't want to read too much into it. I mean, they could have expected just given the media attention associated with this case that it would be granted. It wouldn't really be contested, but you know, it's all the more reason to make a record. And then, you know, you've, you mentioned that um, although you understand judge Gull's ruling, you know, you, you disagree with it by, you know, the, the aspect of leaving it within Carroll County to a certain extent. And for you, would there have been another solution that would have possibly been, you know, the best of all worlds, essentially? Well, for me, uh, I just think the the best solution is simply just a full change of venue. The logistics of this case are going to be difficult regardless of whether you take in a jury from a different county and bring them to Carroll County or you go down to another county and you have to bring all the witnesses down there. You know, court has a lot more. I think there's a lot more control over witnesses and so forth. You know, they're invested in the case. They want to see a fair trial go through, you know, and I think they're more willing to abide by any orders and so forth and will be more responsive. I I just think it's going to be very difficult in terms of bringing the jury up here and, and making sure that there's no outside influence. I guess the immediate issue the defense attorneys and the prosecution is facing at this time is how to select which county to pull the juries from. What sort of factors do you imagine the defense would be considering when they're trying to find that county? I think they're going to want something with a diverse population, a larger metropolitan area, um, and something that is far and away from Carroll County. You know, I can, if you want me to, kind of what I think a good prospective county is. You know, I think Vandenberg County would be a pretty suitable county, that being where Evansville's at. Um, I think it's eighth. It's at least top ten in population in Indiana among all counties. It's the southwest corner of the state. It's kind of its own, well, it is its own metro area. I think it's about a four-hour drive or just under that from Delphi to Evansville. You know, I think that's a suitable county, in my opinion. It's always a county that I look to on these issues. And, you know, as I mentioned, I think um, Andrew Baldwin's experience will come into play. You know, I'm sure he's taken cases there before. And, you know, if I'm defense counsel, I'm, I'm probably also reaching out to the Indiana Public Defender Council for their insights as well. I'd probably reach out to, you know, really experienced uh, criminal defense attorneys in certain counties and kind of gauge what their perspective is on, on uh, prospective jurors as well. That certainly makes sense. And and when you do look at the defense motion for change of venue, when they're asking for, you know, 150 miles, really the only major city that falls within those parameters is Evansville. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if they had their eyes on Evansville as well. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it is ultimately, I think one of the prime counties when it, when it comes to a change of venue, just given its location and its large population. Um, one element that was sort of interesting in the most recent hearing was you had Judge Gull and the prosecutors sort of indicating that they thought that a March trial date was somewhat ambitious. But when asked, the defense attorneys sort of said that they would maybe perhaps address that at the February bond hearing. And I'm curious, you do you make anything out of the fact that they the defense has not said at this time, Yes, we waive our right to speedy trial. You know, we'll have to push this back. Uh, I don't read too much into it at all. Um, I think defense kind of knows where where they'll be at, anyways, and that a March date isn't suitable. I, the only thing that I can say is maybe they're they're trying to push, you know, for the state to formally move to continue. In Indiana, we have what's known as Criminal Rule Four. Uh, that means that, you know, the date that something is filed, it must be tried within one year. But there are certain continuances that don't run against that one year. In other words, if you and if the if defense and the, the prosecutor agree to continue the date, that wouldn't run against that one year. If defense moves to continue, that would not run against that one year but if it's a state moving to continue then that would run against that one year right now as it stands um you know the, the clock is is ticking against the state on that one year time frame so i think it's the only thing that i could think of is that it's just uh, to try to put the time on the state that makes a lot of sense and uh that actually um is is the extent of our questions for you. I'm curious, is there anything, any aspect of this that we didn't ask about or uh, that you wanted to go more in depth on? No, that's it. Thank you so much. Thank and uh, we're talking in later, I'm sure. We want to thank Shay again for speaking with us. And as a reminder, if you want to follow him for more legal insights, you can find him on Twitter at publicdefender underscore or on Instagram at who's your public defender. We'll also include links to his accounts in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.